Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Battle Walks, where we are once again walking the great battlefields of Europe. I've got to say, it's a bit of a new season for us. There's battlefield tours actually occurring in real time, which is fantastic. For two years, we've done nothing but do virtual tours. But uh, as of this week, we are now actually doing tours again on the battlefield. So it's a wonderful new era. I know someone who's very excited by it is my co-host, Pete Smith. Pete, how exciting. Back on the battlefields. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, I can't wait. And in fact, I'm going out tomorrow. I'm uh, on my way to Paris tomorrow for the start of the uh, the Anzac Tour. Uh, one that uh, always is uh, uh, really, really good fun. It's one of the longer tours that I do and probably secondary only to, uh, t- to the tour that I'm doing with you, Matt, later on in the year, the Signature Tour. So, yeah, very exciting. It is really exciting, mate, and it's a little bit of an intimate group this year. Normally, we get thirty or forty people on that Anzac tour, but this year we've only got uh, we've only got a dozen or so. But it's 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 great. I'm I'm really gratified to see that so many people are returning to the battlefields. We're getting a lot of late bookings for 2022, which is really exciting. Um, so a number of people are going for 2023, of course. But it's just fantastic to see that people have been waiting for the borders to open and are now heading back over there. So lots of uh, lots of tours later in the year as well, mate. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm quite glad that there's only uh, not the the full the full coach load because uh, a little concerned I might not be able to remember everything. It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> As always, you're being way too humble, mate. I think you've uh, you've forgotten more about the battlefields than I'll ever know. But um, it's just going to be great. Obviously, they're in great hands. It's uh, we look forward to a report. You'll uh, hopefully do some recording while you're actually on the ground about what's happening yep. in Anzac Day. So we can look forward to that. I'm really jealous that you're back on the battlefields, mate. I won't be back until September, as you said, on our signature tour. Um, But it's going to be exciting. 
Yeah, I'm look. I'm looking forward to the actual Anzac uh, service uh, at Villas Bretonneux, the dawn service, because it is going to be a dawn service. There was a little. It uh, took a little while for them to announce what they were going to do, but it's going to be a full dawn service as as normal. Um, numbers are looking like between between eight hundred and a thousand people. I'm hoping so. Uh, it'll be it'll be a fair number there. So yeah, it should be uh, really good fun. Well, I should say to everyone listening, if you do want to get over to the battlefields and you're keen on a trip this year. It is probably one of the best times to go just because the numbers are down. They're just not the crowds mm-hmm. that they normally are, the, whether you're talking about Gallipoli or the Western Front. Um, you, you're going to have mostly the place to yourself. So it is a good time this year to be heading over um, and walking that ground. But, Pete, it's just great that people are coming back over. I know it's what you and I love doing more than anything else is getting out walking the ground. Oh, certainly. Um, and it's been a long, long time before I've been able to look at the diary and think, ah, it's starting to look like the old days. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great. Well, of course, we're not just walking the ground in an actual sense. We're also still doing it in a virtual sense. We're going to continue to do Battle Walks podcasts as we carry on because we've just had so much fun. We're going to have to try and squeeze it in between other things, but we will find the time to do it. Um, so thank you, dear listener, for tuning in once again. It's exciting to be out walking the ground. And um, also something exciting as well is we've, uh, we've launched our subscription program. So if you want to join us for bonus episodes and for ad-free listening, you can now do that as well by simply subscribing. I'll put a link in the show notes to Acast+. Plus. Um, but it's a really good opportunity if you want to join us for more than just the regular episodes, to join us for bonus episodes. Um, become a member. It's only a small fee a month and you get lots of extra time with Pete and I. And really some extra episodes where Pete and I just really chat as we would over a beer and explore some of those topics we don't get a chance to during the podcast. So it's Acast Plus, uh, and there's a link in the show notes if you want to subscribe. And we look forward to seeing seeing our valued subscribers. But today, we're doing a great walk, one that I've been looking forward to, Pete. We're getting towards Anzac Day, so it makes sense that we do a, a Gallipoli walk. But this one's a little bit unusual. This is north of the Anzac sector. We're going to do a, a two-part series where we're going to walk Suvla Bay, way up in the north. Now, one of the least visited parts of the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting area, Pete. You and I have done it together, and it's a, it's, a, it's a really fascinating area, quite different to the other parts of Gallipoli, isn't it? Well, well I enjoy it uh, for a couple of reasons, because I have a connection there um, with uh, one of the Dorset regiments. I lived in, in Dorset for a while, and one of the Dorset battalions, the 5th Battalion, fought there, so I was always interested to go and see where they fought, and several of the Yeomanry regiments, that, that part-time territorials, uh, cavalry had fought there as well and it's 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 extensive it's a, a big area and it's fairly flat so you get a good view from almost wherever you are you're either looking down onto the flat area or you're looking up to the ridges there and obviously in, in the main the techs were on the ridges so it's a it's a fantastic place to go remote as I'm sure we're just going to be chatting about it it's a remote place and uh, and you do feel away from everybody else when you're there and you very rarely see anybody else in fact when you're there I'll give a very quick overview of the history. This won't be an extensive history. This will just be to give some context to the, the discussions we're going to have. But basically, in August 1915, after months and months of pleading for more troops, uh, General Hamilton, the commander of the forces at Gallipoli, finally got his wish. And from the UK, they dispatched tens of thousands of more troops. Several divisions came out uh, to 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 reinforce the Gallipoli garrison. And the issue was there was nowhere to put them. Where were they going to put all these troops? So up until this point, they were crammed in at Anzac. The French and the British were crammed in down at Helles. There was literally nowhere to put more troops on these narrow little beachheads. So they decided, well, there's a whole heap of open space further to the north of Anzac. So if we can launch this big new, land this big new force there, 
they can push inland, overcome the Turks, cut the peninsula off. It was a little bit of a uh, sort of a rehash of the original plan from the day of the landing. Um, and so in the early, early, the first week of August, they landed this huge force at Suvla Bay up in the north of the, of the peninsula. Uh, and this huge force landed. But again, Pete, just everything about Gallipoli, just a disaster. Dithering around and not moving forward That's, quickly enough. Vague yeah. objectives. And in the end, the force landed and were able to secure the beachhead. But the Turks reinforced the high ground. And once again, exactly the same as Helles, exactly the same as Anzac. The Allies were hemmed in on the beach and the Turks had the high ground. Just another missed opportunity, Pete. There are, there are so many kind of oddities and, and interesting, uh, I suppose, uh, subjects we can talk about, uh, which we almost certainly won't have time to do. So I'm going to co- just cover a few. Um, some of the British units uh, that were landing, the British divisions that were landing, were Kitchener divisions. So these are the guys, the pointing finger of Kitchener, you know, your country needs you. These are the volunteers that we normally associate with the first day of the Battle of the Somme. But actually, two of these divisions arriving are Kitchener men arriving on the Gallipoli Peninsula, and this will be the first place they will go into action. Um, And uh, two of the battalions that have always interested me, because they're kind of local to where I come from, the 6th Battalion of the Yorkshire Regiment and the 9th Battalion of the West Yorkshire Regiment, will be the first Kitchener battalions to go into action. Uh, So the first of those volunteers. One of the other just bizarre aspects of of the landings where most of the men, including the commanding officers of these battalions, had no idea until the last hours of where they were actually going to land and what they were going to be doing. I just find it extraordinary. Also, many of the men were ill because they'd been inoculated just before they got there, so they were struggling from their inoculations uh, as well. Uh, lack of sleep, seasickness before they landed... And they're going to be, be landing in the dark as well. And you can imagine, we know from the uh, the original landings uh, on Anzac Day, how difficult that was uh, that was going to be. Well, this will be, uh, as Matt just quite rightly said, will be no different. It's just, just unbelievable con- confusion. And I've been reading an account because I happen to have a, a couple of collections of letters, as some of you will be aware. I, I collect documents connected with the First World War. And one of my collections of, uh, of letters... It's from a, a, a soldier who will, who will die just uh, very soon after the initial landings uh, take place. And I've been reading about his battalion and, and the commanding officer of that battalion. The only way he was able to even get a slightest idea of what was going on was to, be, to manage to get himself on a destroyer near to the coast. He was given the uniform of a naval rating so he could go on deck and have a look and try and be pointed out where they were going and what they were going to do. I just find that just extraordinary, this lack of, uh, this lack of planning and, and maps, lack of maps and maps that, that were either uh, fudged together or, or were completely wrong. Uh, just, it just goes on and on and on, really. Just wasted opportunities. It's so frustrating. We won't go into too much detail about the specifics of the Suva landing on this podcast, but but go and look it up and just just how muddled it was and how poorly carried yeah. out it was. So again, just another lost opportunity. It, it could have been successful, but it wasn't. Um, the ground is interesting. It's very spread out. It gives the impression mm. of being very very flat. It, you know, there's no ridges like there are at Anzac, and there's no sort of rolling hills like there are at uh, at, at Helles. Uh, but it's a bit deceptive as well, Pete, isn't it? We've walked across mm, it. it. There's a lot of little gullies mm. and washaways yep. and little rivulets. And there's the big salt lake, which is the key feature behind Suvla Bay. And, you know, it's it's yeah. deceptive. It'd be hard country to cross at any sort of pace after you'd landed. 
and I have to say, most of the times that I've been and, and walked in this area has not been the height of summer. And of course, we are talking the height of summer. You know, the landings took place on the on the sixth of August. I just can't imagine what it would be like. It's absolutely boiling, and there's very little shade uh, as well. There, and just just that's the other thing. And water was always a problem, but yeah, unreal. So it's an interesting, it's a very interesting part of Gallipoli to visit, part that most people don't take mm. the time to, but I'm, I'm excited that we're going to be doing it. You absolutely have to. If you go to Gallipoli, you have to see this area yep. as well, because it just tells such an important part of the story. But another part of the story that's really important is while the British were landing at Suva Bay, the Anzacs and some British troops launched, oh, I, don't, I don't know how to even describe this, the most overly ambitious, the main part of the assault during the August Offensive. When we talk about August Offensive, we talk about attacks at Hellas, we talk about the landing at Suvla, we talk about the attack at Lone Pine, we talk about the charge at the Neck, we talk about the New Zealanders on Chunuk Bear. There's so many elements to it. Again, so overcomplicated. But the key to the entire August Offensive was... Really, the, the the area we're going to to walk today, Pete, and the the the, the, the yep. attack that took place when the Anzacs and some British troops attacked through the tangle, the mad tangle of gullies north of Anzac to try and outflank the Turks and get to the high ground. And the high ground is Hill Nine Seven One, Hill Q, and Chunuk Bear are the three hills that the Anzacs were trying to get to. I mean, do you want to just give us the briefest overview of this disastrous advance, Pete? <laughs> Well, it, it is disastrous for for the main reason this is done in the dark. There are columns trying to br- uh, to break through uh, land that's not been uh, surveyed properly, and so there's no, been no patrolling. You've got this uh, horrendous. I don't know what the bushes are, Matt. Those, the, the, I mean, unbelievably spiky bushes. Very difficult to push through, like a a gorse, I suppose, a, a, yeah. a kind of spiky a gorse. bastards. I think they're called. Yeah, that's that'll be the ones. Yeah, and in fact, there's a pair of my glasses dangling off some of them. I lost some glasses on one of while pushing through those uh, those uh, those bushes but uh, but disastrous we we have uh, uh, commanding officers who are, are are drunk as well as one of the one of the stories and it's, it's just it's just one of those operations that right away from the start to the finish because as Matt rightly said everything is supposed to interlock together but doesn't interlock together because there's never been a proper briefing explaining to people exactly what role they should be and at what time they should be at, at certain points. And, yeah, it's uh, just just truly horrendous. So the basic thing, again, we won't go into all the history, but but look up. I mean, firstly, look up, if you're listening to this, look up a picture from the neck or from Pluggy's Plateau looking north up towards Suvla Bay. There's a lot of photos taken both during the campaign and modern photos. And just note how tangled and complicated this terrain is. Mm. Much worse than Anzac. Much worse. Much steeper. Much higher. Much tougher uh, to trek through. The troops were doing it in the dark. And basically they got lost. They they weren't on time. They got lost. Uh, uh, Colonel Monash, John Monash, who went on to greatness on the Western Mm. Front. This was not his finest hour. And ironically, Pete, he did his worst work on the 8th of August uh, during this advance. (laughs) which was three years to the day before his most triumphant attack on the Western Front. But on the 8th of August here, he didn't go forward to see what was going on. His troops got held up and they got completely lost. They actually walked up the wrong gully. They were in exactly the wrong place. And it wasn't until after the campaign that Monash even realised that when he'd been giving orders to his troops, they weren't even where he thought they were uh, in the gully. So a complete disaster. The New Zealanders, I should say, did get to Chunuk Bear. The Australians were supposed to get to 971. The British were supposed to get to Hill Q. And the New Zealanders were supposed to get to Chunuk Bear. The New Zealanders did get to Chunuk Bear and had 
some of their toughest fighting of the campaign up there and weren't able to hold their gains, so eventually were pushed back off the crest. But we're going to walk some of this area and we're just going to just just remember that what a disaster it was, troops getting lost in the dark, stiff, stiff Turkish opposition as well. Like always, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't forget that the the reason a lot of these plans went wrong was good defence from the Turks. But Pete, uh, I mean, an exercise in frustration. I think you described this. Yeah, I, 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 and uh, you can see why. I mean, I, I've actually got lost in the day. Never mind in the dark. Uh, I just can't imagine doing it in the dark. <laughs> it's it's beyond it's it's beyond comprehension, isn't it? Just when you walk yeah, that ground, it it's it's yeah. it's the one place at Gallipoli where I can't actually imagine what it was like. Everywhere else you go at Gallipoli, you go, oh, I can, I feel like I'm in 1915, just about. Yeah. You can't at Suvla because if you, I mean, what you're trying to imagine is literally tens of thousands of men blundering around in the dark trying to find where they're supposed to be heading. It just, uh, yeah. it, 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 the reports from the men were just, um, just, just insufferable about uh, the, the experience. But that, that's the ground we're going to walk today. So it's going to be a fun one, Pete. I mean, it's, it's an area that I've done a few times, but it's, uh, it's one that you and I have done once together. It's, it's yep. not an area that, that is on the regular tourist trail. So it's going to be a little bit of an exploration together as we go along. It is. Uh, I should mention we're also uh, doing this walk from my book, um, Gallipoli, The Battlefield Guide. So if you want to follow along, if you're playing along at home. Uh, so we're going to do this in two parts. There's 20 stops on the tour. So we're going to do the first 10. So this will effectively be, we're, we're not quite going to do the Suvla sector in this walk. We're going to do the north of Anzac. We're going to talk about that Anzac attack uh, into the hills, into the high ground in the first week of August. Uh, and we get to talk all the way up to the Battle of Hill 60, which was a, a monumental battle very late in the campaign. So shall we commence the walk, Pete? Yes, certainly. I, uh, I say walk. I should say, in reality, this is something you're more likely to do in your car than actually do on yeah. foot. This first section you could do uh, you could do on foot, but it would be a long walk. It would probably take most of the day to do it. Um, but you certainly could. I've done it on foot, and it's, it's quite, a great, uh, quite a great adventure. Um, but you might do this in your car as well because there's a, there's a lot of sides to see. So we're going to start at the Anzac commemorative site where Anzac Day is held. So uh, go back and listen. If you haven't already listened to our couple of episodes we did on the Anzac beaches um, because we described the, the Anzac sector and where the Anzacs came ashore, um, and uh, this, uh, the first stop on that first tour is where this tour is going to begin as well, except in, rather than going south like we did on the Anzac beaches, we're heading north. So it's the Anzac commemorative site where Anzac Day is held each year. And, and Pete, we won't linger too long on Anzac Day, but we should certainly mention it. Just a, an amazing spot for that Anzac Day service yeah. every year. It, it, it is. It's a fantastic location. I mean, it's a fantastic location because it's historic. Obviously, it's uh, just to the to the uh, to the left of where the the bulk of the of the Anzacs landed um but it's also a fantastic place to be to to look up and uh, uh, from those those beaches and uh, and see that height we've discussed it before but it, it uh, you know it is it is just awe inspiring when you stand on the beach and you look at where the men are expected to to get to uh, and uh, and you realize and for me, it's always the same. Every time I go and I stand on that beach and I look up, it never feels as it should. It always feels steeper. It feels closer. You feel more exposed as you're on the beaches. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a great place to start any tour from, really. So what we're going to do is there's a road that goes along the beach, and this was the area that linked the Anzac and Suvla sectors after the landings in August. And really, this was a, a pretty major thoroughfare for the men up and up and back between Suvla and Anzac. And because of that, in the in the lees of hills and 
in, in protected places, they built hospitals and cemeteries. So a number, we're going to see a number of cemeteries as we walk along here. And I think the interesting thing about each one of them, Pete, is they, they each tell a little bit of a different story. So we're going to start with the first one, which is Canterbury Cemetery, um, which is just north of the, of the commemorative site, the Anzac commemorative site. Um, a, a gorgeous little cemetery named uh, in honour of the Canterbury Mounted Rifles. Uh, this is an area where a lot of New Zealand troops operated throughout the campaign. Um, and a beautiful little cemetery, one of the smallest, not the smallest, but one of the smallest at Gallipoli, uh, only 27 graves. So it's just a, just a good start to the walk. And I mean, there's not a huge amount to say about this cemetery in particular, Pete, but it's, it's fascinating how each of the cemeteries at Gallipoli has their own character, isn't it? It is indeed, and I think this one's interesting as well, and it's always a clue that the, that's partly medical, is because of the 27, 22 are identified. Now, that's not always c- common on a lot of the uh, the cemeteries on the peninsula, um, but that, my general feeling is that when you get named uh, uh, graves, then it's medical, and as we said, most of these are actual medical posts uh, uh, close to the beach, ready for evacuation. So just a cute little cemetery, 27 graves. Cute's not the right word, but a small and intimate cemetery. So 27 yeah. graves, 22 of the bodies are identified, as Pete said. Um, importantly, um, this is at the base of Walker's Ridge, the, the cemetery. So that's uh, Walker's Ridge was the, the key thoroughfare to the front line for the New Zealanders. So a, a nice little piece of New Zealand um, right at the start of the walk. And on the, on the beach in front, of the, in front of the cemetery is the wreck of a barge. There's a few of these scattered along the beach, but there is one here at low tide. You can see the uh, the remains of a barge that was left there during the during the campaign. Obviously, was not of importance to the Turks because they left it there as well. I do love these little um these little wrecks that you find on the beaches, Pete. Just the, the most just a, it's, yep. it's like Gallipoli gives us just a little bit, just a little tantalising connection with the campaign, just to remind us of what went on there. Well, I think it's also interesting that uh, if you take your swimmers, and I, I do, uh, I do tend to. It means that if you get an opportunity and you've got the time, if you're doing this uh, by yourselves and you, you're not rushing to get around everything in in one day, then which I would suggest, suggest you don't here anyway. Um, you need to spend a few days here at least. Uh, go and have a swim over some of these barges and have a look down. It's great. Walk on the beach a bit. You know the, the lumps of SRD jar you can pick up on the beach still. The the uh, the service rum dilute. Um, as the men, the men knew it, uh, then uh, yeah. So it's uh, it's always worthwhile just having a little wander about. And I, 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 we've discussed this in previous podcasts. If you've listened, I just like that connection with picking something up that is directly from that period, and and thinking you're probably the first person to have picked that up since uh, since it got broken. If it's a rum jar uh, or, or whatever it may be, a water jar. It's a good point, Pete. And people often find ammunition as well around these barges. Yeah. You know, that, uh, yeah that was, were on the barges when they were sunk. So we're going to continue north now, and about after 350 metres we come to the Anzac Village, uh, it's called, which is the Commonwealth War Graves Commission base here at the Anzac and Suvla sector. So this is where the, the, the Turkish people who work for the Commonwealth War Graves maintaining the cemeteries, this is their base where they keep all their equipment and, and do all their work from. And it's closed to visitors, but if you bump into the gardeners and have a chat to them, Often they will show you through. And there's a, there's a couple of interesting things to see there. The first is a little bit of a special place to me. In the 1930s, when lots of VIPs and distinguished people were visiting Gallipoli and there was very little accommodation, they decided that the Commonwealth War Graves or the Imperial War Graves, as it was then, decided they needed some accommodation on site. And so they built effectively a Tyneside cottage in the Commonwealth War Graves compound. And it's remarkable. It's still there today. It's still maintained. And it has no electricity. 
but it does have hot water, which is operated by gas. It has a fridge, which is operated by gas, and kerosene lanterns, and it's extraordinary. And you can stay there if you are in some sort of official capacity with Commonwealth Wargrave. So if you're a historian writing a book or if you're doing some research for your PhD or if you have some specific reason to be there, you can apply to Commonwealth Wargraves to stay there. And it's absolutely remarkable, this little cottage. And I stayed there. I've only stayed there once when I was finishing off this book or actually describing right now, Gallipoli, The Battlefield Guide. But it's just remarkable. It's the only accommodation actually within the Gallipoli Battlefield area. Um, and it's just extraordinary. What a wonderful place. And, and again, a little piece of 1930s Britain uh, in the heart of Gallipoli. Pete, have, have you ever stayed there? No, I haven't. I, I, and I, I remember going past it. I think we may have driven past it. Sadly, I don't remember walking past, but I remember wishing that uh, that I could go and have a have a rummage around because it looked just very interesting. And it's always uh, worthwhile talking to the gardeners. I do it a lot here on the Western Front. Uh, it's amazing what you can pick up, what information snippets of of information. Um, so uh, no, it's one that's uh, on the on the list for the next time when I'm there. It's a great place to next go. Next time we go, mate, we'll stay there. It's fantastic. A couple of cold beers for the kerosene yep. from the uh, from the gas powered fridge, and then walk down to the uh, down to the beach. It's really quite special. But another thing that's very special, and we try to take people to on our Gallipoli tours if we can. There's a very unusual grave in the uh, in the Commonwealth War Graves compound here. It's not. It, it's a. It's a. It's it's unbelievable. It's a Commonwealth War Grave like all the others you see across the peninsula. But it's not of a soldier. It's of a horse. A horse called Bill. And it's just really remarkable. This is the only Commonwealth War grave in the world dedicated to an animal. And Bill was a whaler, a white horse, a light horse whaler, uh, who I, I don't think he was here during the Gallipoli campaign because not many of the horses were that came with the light horse. Um, but I think he would have served with the light horse in Palestine. And then a number of members of the light horse came back to Gallipoli after the war to establish the graves and to tend to the battlefield. So I think he came back then with, uh, with an Australian or New Zealand light horse veteran. Um, and, uh, yeah, and just he was there until his death in 1924. And so Bill is buried there under his Commonwealth Wargraves headstone. Uh, and his inscription reads, Bill, Australian Light Horse, 1914 to 1924, a whaler and one of the best. Just, Pete, great little story, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's fantastic. It's, uh, yeah, it's those little stories that make the battlefield, really. It's really fantastic. And so we, we try to take people there when we, if, if, if we can, uh, Roachy, Craig Roach, our, our dedicated Gallipoli guide, is very good at, uh, ta- he knows all the gardeners, so uh, he usually gets people in there to see the, see the grave of Bill. There's a bit of conjecture. There's a, there's a famous light horse horse called Bill the Bastard, um, who was famous for being a recalcitrant <laughs> member of the light horse. I, don't think the, I think the two stories have been confused. I don't think this is the same horse. They're both called Bill, um, but I think they're two separate stories. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the grave to Bill, the, uh, the only... Uh, the only Commonwealth War grave of the world to a horse. Just extraordinary. So we're going to leave the, uh, the Anzac village and continue heading north. There's a couple of hills on the right, which are the outpost hills. So they were called outpost number one, outpost number two. Uh, they feature in the opening days of the campaign. You often read about them as, uh, as, you, uh, uh, as forming the left flank of the Anzac landings in the opening day of the campaign. Not really much to see there of them today, but you can certainly note them as you head north. But something you will note is uh, just after the Anzac compound is a little white hut. I think it's been rebuilt, Pete. It was burnt down recently, but I yep. think it's been rebuilt uh, yet again for the umpteenth time. Um, there's always been a little hut on this hill, and it's known. It's a very important part of the first day of the Gallipoli story. It was called Fisherman's Hut. Uh, and on the yep. day of the landing, the Turks were dug in an area uh, around Fisherman's Hut. 
and the boats that landed on North Beach, not all the boats landed at Anzac Cove, some landed at North Beach, and the fire from here was just was just horrendous. And some of the greatest casualties in the Anzac sector on the day of the landing occurred uh, for the boats trying to land in and around Fisherman's Hut. And it's always a really important landmark, isn't it, Pete, when you're in this part of the sector? It is. I was just about to say that because uh, if I remember rightly, it, it was quite. It's painted white, so you can see it uh, from quite some distance, and it's always a, a really good uh, position to point out. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, ra- I'm uh, say I haven't been back since there was a fire there, but I've also heard that it had been rebuilt. So ho- hopefully, it's uh, it's as prominent and you can see it as as previously because it was a it's a good landmark. There was an interesting uh, little uh, anecdote from a couple of days after the landing. Some New Zealanders were in the hills overlooking the beach and they could see the boats that had come ashore with all dead and wounded or dead men lying in the boats who'd been killed when they landed. But uh, interesting little quote here just about something that happened in front of Fisherman's Hut. So this is the day after the landing. So this was a, a soldier called Ross. As Ross watched, he was astonished to see a figure detach itself from the dreadful heap and begin to hobble along the beach. After a few yards, it collapsed. A Turkish sniper had opened. The splash of his bullets could be seen in the water just beyond the man. So this poor bugger had laid for a couple of days amongst the, the, the wounded and, or the, amongst the dead in, uh, in all these boats and on the beach. And he, just, he was wounded and decided to make a run for it. And, but Ross, it has a happy ending to the story, Ross and four men crept out and uh, dragged him to safety. So that man survived. But just an extraordinary story, Pete. It must have been horrendous to be lie there amongst the, the corpses of your, of your mates for two days in the, in the, in the heat. Yeah, I suspect he was probably unconscious for a lot of it. He came around and thought, "Where on earth am I?" and uh, and then made made a run for it. But yeah, uh, yeah, horrific, uh, too, almost too much to imagine. Really, a situation like uh, like that. It's the the story of Gallipoli, isn't it? That these key little moments, yeah. wherever you stand, we've said this before, because the front lines didn't move very much because the the, the allies were there for so long without really advancing. Every square meter of ground at Gallipoli has dozens of stories. From, yeah. from the day of the landing throughout the campaign, through August, and then the evacuation. So that's just an, another one of those little insights into the hell that was Gallipoli. But um, we're going to continue on now. So again, another hill on the right is Maori Hill, which was occupied by the Maori contingent at Gallipoli. Um, and again, uh, we'll tell more of their story. We talked a little bit about it when we did Walker's Ridge uh, during uh, one of our earliest, I think it was our second episode, we talked about Second Ridge at Gallipoli, and we talked about the Maoris up there. Uh, but the Maori contingent... Uh, quite a prominent part of the New Zealand forces. Uh, but we're going to carry on and we're going to come to another cemetery. Now, this one is number two, Outpost Cemetery, um, which is, again, just near the outposts that formed the left flank of Anzac. Uh, and again, in the lee of these hills, they formed a, uh, uh, in the early weeks of the campaign, they, form, they formed a field hospital. Uh, and uh, so this is where uh, a cemetery sprung up as well. It's, it's one of those things, Pete, isn't it, that wherever during the First World War you find a field hospital um, almost invariably, you'll also find a cemetery nearby. Yeah, it goes, goes without saying, really, and it's, it's one of the sad aspects of uh, of um, uh, medical posts of whatever type, whether it be a field hospital or a dressing station, is that people are not going to survive uh, always, and you need to you need to bury them. So it's uh, it's very very common. Sometimes they're so small that they're eventually uh, moved. The bodies are exhumed and moved to a larger cemetery. But in this case, it's uh, it's large enough to to, to continue and uh, has formed a permanent cemetery. Uh, I always think they're quite sad, really, and I often think about the moribund tent when I think about these dressing stations, where the medical doctor who was working there 
you know, has to make those life or death decisions if he's going to work on a man that he could normally save, um, but it's going to take so long uh, that he'll lose the next three or four people. They will die or bleed to death while uh, while they're waiting, so he has to make a decision on a man that will take too long to save. He has to put aside and hope that he'll survive and go back to him when he's cleared the uh, uh, the, the next three or four and, and gives himself a breathing space. And it's the, the nightmares of doctors, really, having to make life or, or death decisions. I think in one of our special bonus episodes, Pete, we'll talk about medical facilities during the First World War because it's a mm. such a such a, an important part of the story, but one that gets a little bit overlooked yeah. in favour of combat troops and infantry and artillery and all the other things that come with a, a battlefield. But yeah. medical medical services on the battlefield just essential. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's a moribund. It's one of those ones that we don't use in you know, how many times you bring that into a conversation during the week, moribund. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, yeah, it has those connotations of people just left to uh, to die in, in these areas known as the, the, mor- the moribund areas or moribund tents. Yeah, just horrific. But uh, today, num- uh, number two outpost contains 152 burials. So 32 men from New Zealand, seven from Australia and three from Britain and special memorials commemorating 48 men known or believed to be buried amongst them, and then the rest are unidentified. And like so many cemeteries at Gallipoli, uh, the vast majority unidentified. So you'll see a, yeah. a cemetery that has only a small number of headstones, uh, but, but note that beneath your feet as you walk in the open areas are uh, many yeah. more bodies than are, than are demonstrated by the headstone. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, yeah, that's just a nice, nice, nice little spot. Yeah, I think that's always a sign, isn't it, when you get, you get so many like that, that they've been using it to concentrate uh, the remains from people in the area as well, and, and they're brought in, and the longer you have uh, uh, that wait to bring people in, uh, to exhume them from elsewhere or bring them in because they, they're found lying in the surf, on the surface or in a gully, then less and less chance of being able to identify them. And that's really shown here because even the ones that are identified, uh, a lot of the men were killed on the opening day, landing on North Beach, um, but because yeah. they couldn't get to them until the 2nd of May, uh, a lot of the dates the identified men simply say 25th of April to 2nd of May. Um, so yeah. that uh, sort of week-long period because they couldn't identify when they were killed. But, of course, most of them were killed on the first day. Um, yeah. We're going to head uh, a little bit further north and come to another cemetery. This one's New Zealand number two outpost cemetery. So the New Zealand equivalent of the Australian one we've just come past. This is a bit of a deceptive one. New Zealand outpost number two, um, because uh, it, it looks small. It, it looks like a small cemetery, but there's actually 183 men buried here, Pete. So it's exactly what we were talking about. There's only 33 headstones and 31 special memorials. So it looks like a small little cemetery, but there's actually 183 men buried here. So the, the scale of the missing soldiers from Gallipoli is, well, certainly on par with what we see on the Western Front, but, uh, but handled in a very different way to the Western Front. Yeah, indeed. At these special memorials, I've always found them slightly odd as well, because in reality, a special memorial uh, is, is really that their bodies are, they don't know where they are, they're either lost within the cemetery or lost close to the cemetery, or when they were concentrated in from a cemetery, they couldn't be found, and effectively they're, they're missing, really. Um, and I often wonder if the special memorials are really just a, a tactic to try and reduce the numbers of the missing because the numbers of the missing for the Great War are, are, are so terrible in a way that so many people become missing. We understand that those of us that uh, work on the battlefields and, uh, uh, and research the battlefields, we understand how many people can become missing. But to the public at home, you know, there was a lack of understanding of how could you lose the bodies of so many men and not know where they were. It's, um, this cemetery is notable not just for the fact of the burials. I mean, certainly go there and visit the graves and, and pay your respects. But it's, it's also interesting as the start slash end point of a really interesting track that was an initiative that was done maybe 20 years ago by the New Zealanders. Because this is the area where the New Zealanders advanced during the August offensive and successfully reached the high ground at Chunuk Bear. And that's where the main New Zealand memorials are. There's the New Zealand National Memorial is up there. The main cemeteries, uh, you know, record, you know, holding the, the bodies of men that were killed in that attack on Chinook Bear, and also the New Zealand memorial that records yeah. the missing from that from that offensive. So the, the key point for New Zealanders at Gallipoli is Chinook Bear. Um, and about twenty years ago, a group of New Zealanders decided that they wanted that the ground the New Zealanders cross, had crossed was not adequately able to be visited. So they built a track which goes all the way from Chinook Bear down and finishes here at at uh, number two New Zealand Cemetery. And so it's a fantastic track and you can start it from behind the cemetery and head up, but I'd recommend you don't do that. Start at Chunuk Bear <laughs> and head down. Um, you're walking yeah. the opposite direction of the New Zealanders, but it is, a, it is a tough slog if you're heading up. I've never done it upwards, I have to say. I've only ever done it going down, but it is a remarkable walk. And you head down from Chunuk Bear down there's a fire trail that heads down to the farm cemetery which is a famous site up at Chunuk Bear um, but you just keep heading down and they've built steps and railings and it's a bit of a scramble you've got to be a little bit careful I mean Peter Hart when he goes to Gallipoli he says oh it's just a short walk uh, so one of the first one of the other lessons we can give you about Gallipoli is if you're there with Peter Hart never believe him when he says it's just a short walk 
Uh, it's a quite a scramble, but it's remarkable. It takes several hours to do. It's not part of this walk. We're not going to do it today, Pete. But absolutely, when you go to Gallipoli, do the walk down. Well, it's down Rhododendron Ridge, so in yeah. the footsteps of the New Zealanders, and it's absolutely remarkable. And it finishes just behind this cemetery. Have you done the scramble down Rhododendron, Pete? I haven't. No, I haven't. But uh, but I've certainly done a lot of scrambling behind uh, Peter Hart. So I can. <laughs> I can I can imagine. I mean, coming down. Thankfully, that all that was in my mind then, because I know exactly what it's going to be like. There's a swim at the end. That's all I'd be thinking. I can go for a swim at the end. <laughs> well, I I had done parts of it. I'd done it in little bits and pieces, but I'd never done the whole thing until my most recent visit in 2019 with Peter Hart, and we did it. And it is it is quite special. There's dugouts along the way. There's remains yeah. of trenches. It's really off the beaten track. It's one of the. It's unique because you can. It is a proper track, so it is a little bit safe, and you know you know which way you're going. You can't get lost. But it's one of the few places at Gallipoli where you can get absolutely off the beaten track, you know, away from the tourists, but still be safe and relatively safe, and, and know that you are you're not going to get lost. So I highly recommend it. One of the best things to do at Gallipoli, and just a real credit again to the New Zealanders. They do things so well yeah, on the battlefields. I agree. It's just a really great experience. But that track ends just here where we're standing at the cemetery. Uh, so we're going to head on now and come to the last cemetery in this chain. This one's on the left of the road, and it's called Embarkation Pier Cemetery. And this really marks the end of the Anzac sector. This marks the dividing line between Anzac and Suvla. And again, we won't, you know, there's, a, there's a, obviously a large number of cemeteries here. We won't go into details on each of them. But evacuation, uh, Embarkation Pier, uh, the uh, the Anzacs built a pier that they were using to uh, to load and unload troops, but it was very exposed to Turkish fire, and so uh, and it was only there for a couple of days before they stopped using it. But uh, they did then build a cemetery um, here, again, for hospital units, men killed or wounded between Anzac and Suvla, and particularly men killed in the August offensive, whose bodies were brought down off the hills, uh, were buried there. It's a, it's a big old cemetery, this one, Pete, for Gallipoli. Uh, 944 burials. Yeah, this is your typical concentration cemetery as well, as well as uh, initial burials from people that were dying at the time. It's uh, after the war when they're doing all of those clearances uh, of the of the battlefield where they're trying to find people. They're also shutting down the smaller cemeteries that are not going to be uh, tenable where they are, and, and they're they're going to bring them in. And I think four were actually brought into to this cemetery. So it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's one of the larger ones, and it's uh, it's a it's a clearance cemetery effectively where they've been clearing uh, the the battlefield and also closing down smaller cemeteries so a concentration as we generally call them and we should remember as well pete that in the 1920s the early 1920s when they were building these cemeteries gallipoli was incredibly isolated and transport was a real issue i mean still is today especially this area so just imagine the 1920s trying to build the gardens and the and the and and put the headstones in place they needed sites that, that, that were easily accessible. So in a number of places in Gallipoli, they moved small cemeteries and built the permanent cemetery next to a road. But it still would have been a hell of a job to keep these cemeteries maintained because they did a great job from, from day one. Imperial War Graves, which is now Commonwealth War Graves, did a great job of putting in gardens and just like we see on the Western Front and, head, and beautiful yeah. headstones. And they're, they're beautiful places, but obviously a much tougher environment in Gallipoli than it is in France. Yeah. Well, also an interesting time as well that those, you know, the 1920s were an interesting time, you know, for the Turks. There was almost a civil war going on. Uh, there's the the war between the, the the Turks and the and the Greeks, and so yeah, it wasn't an easy time. And in fact, the, you know, the peninsula was being we were basically running the peninsula, so we had that opportunity to to do everything at that just for that small period. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think there's a lot more work, a lot more history that needs to be written about about um, you know the people that were working on the peninsula in the 1920s, creating these cemeteries. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. For my next book, Krithia, I've been researching uh, the, the creation of the graves and <clears throat> the records are yeah. um, very patchy. It's, it's very yeah. hard to tell what, it, what exactly went on. Usually they would just say, went out today, found two cemeteries, concentrated the graves into a, one spot without indicating yeah. where the cemeteries were or who they'd removed or how many bodies they'd even come across. So yeah. uh, it, was, it was tough work. And so, uh, you know, we, we're very, we should be very grateful to them. Yeah. Um, a couple of interesting graves in this cemetery that I always like to visit. Firstly, um, Captain Clarence Luxton of the 6th Battalion. Uh, this is a bit of a mystery, Pete, and we've, we've solved some of these mysteries on the Western Front, but I'm not sure we'll, we'll solve this one. But Luxton was, was in the 6th Battalion on the day of the landing, was leading a group of men in some pretty heavy and famous fighting on Pine Ridge. Um, yeah. Now, Pine Ridge is way on the right flank, way on the, uh, you know, on the southern flank of yeah. the Anzac line. Uh, and Luxton was very prominent there. And he landed, he went straight to Pine Ridge, he led this big fight, and he stayed there for three days, um, or for a couple of days, and then was killed on the, 20, on the 26th of April, so the day after the landing. Uh, yet he is buried in Embarkation Pier Cemetery, which is yeah. the most northerly of the Anzac Cemetery. So I have absolutely no idea how he would have come to be transported from the, the right flank all the way to the left. Well, we have uh, here. It took me a long time to work it out. But we have the similar, obviously, similar is- issues on the Western Front. And generally speaking, and this is why you need some kind of records, and and that there obviously will be very little record keeping done on the peninsula during those those early uh, years of the clearances and, and the, the creation of the cemeteries. But here on the Western Front, it's generally speaking that there are two types of people working. There are exhumation teams uh, operating on the uh, on the battlefields, and there are grave diggers operating on the battlefields, and they're not always in the same area. So if you have somebody digging graves in one area, <coughs> excuse me, and a body is found in another area, then all that happens is that body, no matter how far it is, is is moved to where there are graves being prepared. So I presume, and that's all you can do, is that this is one of those cases. His body was discovered or exhumed uh, in the ni- 1920s from where he'd been initially buried and was taken to where there were graves. And so it just happened to be on the other the other side of the battlefield. So that's that's the only explanation, really, I think. It's an unusual one. There's another grave that I, I always stop at here, which is uh, Lieutenant Archibald uh, Archeloni, I think you'd put Orcoloni. It's a difficult name, Orcoloni. I've never quite <laughs> I got it hate right. those names. I know how good we are at pronunciation, Pete. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, an, it's a story <laughs> worth noting. Cause, so Lieutenant Archibald Orcoloni was in the 25th Battalion. Um, he was captain of the 25th Battalion rugby team, which played a few games before the, 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 the uh, battalion set off for Gallipoli. Um, but he... Uh, he, on the 20th of October, so relatively late in the campaign, uh, they were holding the front line near here and uh, he was shot by a sniper and killed. So that's, you know, obviously a sad story. Um, but the family tragedy, Pete, these, these stories of family tragedy. So yeah. his younger brother, Bert, had been killed on the 8th of August in the same area during the, the advance on Hill 971. His body was never found, so he's recorded on the Lone Pine Memorial. Uh, but there was a third brother, so Cecil, who'd lost both of his brothers in Gallipoli, went on uh, and served. He, he was awarded the Military Cross and Bar on the Western Front uh, for work in July 1918. And then on the 10th of August in 1918, during the famous Australian advance yeah. on uh, Harbonnier on the Somme, not far from where you are there, Pete, uh, yeah. he was killed by machine gun fire. So all three brothers killed, two at Gallipoli and then one on the Western Front. Uh, just, uh, just uh, again, those, those small little tragedies that were repeated thousands of times during the war. 
Well, I might pop in and uh, and go and see him because I'm actually he's buried in Heath Cemetery, and I'm due to go to Heath Cemetery in two days' time. So I, I might pop in there and say hello. Fantastic! It's always good to to to, to pay the respects by the grave, isn't it? The, yeah, it is. the most tangible yeah, aspect yeah. of the battlefields are the, the, the yeah. obviously the bodies of the men that still lie there. So yeah. so that'd be great, Pete. Give him a nod from me. Yeah, we'll do. So we um. I think the interesting thing about Embarkation Pier Cemetery as well is that it, it highlights the ground that the Anzacs had to cross uh, during the that nighttime advance in the uh, in the August offensive. So the big uh, yeah. the the big valley opposite is called Chalak Der uh, as it's known in uh, in Turkish, which is the gully that the New Zealanders followed in their advance. So if, uh, so imagine just being here on the night of the 6th of August and seeing the, the, the thousands of troops streaming past into these gullies. Just quite extraordinary. This one was quite exposed, and a lot of the New Zealanders were hit by Turkish fire here in the mouth of the gully. So it doesn't look like much, but it's actually a pretty um, pretty savage part of the battlefield. And this is also the dividing line between the Anzac sector and the Suvla sector, which is, uh, which is now further north. So we're going to keep driving along, Pete. We're going to drive up. The, the valley is very wide, Chalik Dere. And as we drive up, eventually we come to a, only about 100 metres up, we come to a track that goes up straight up the heart of the valley. And we're going to follow that track on foot, or if you're in our car, we can just drive up it if the weather is good. And we drive up, and eventually we end up on a little hill with a, a little sort of weather station beside it. And this is called Borchips Hill. Um, again, not much to look at, just a little hill in the middle of the valley, um, but was quite prominent during the early part of the attack because it was one of the foothills that had to be cleared by the New Zealanders before they could advance up the valley. And they did it quite cleverly here. It was really um, the, the New Zealand mounted rifles were responsible for clearing these foothills. And it's one of the great, probably overlooked chapters of the, of the Gallipoli campaign, what a great job they did. But a, a sneaky trick here, Pete, where uh, Navy ships every night for weeks in the lead up to the August offensive would shine spotlights on the foothills and then open up a big bombardment. And so they did this every night for weeks in advance of the August offensive. And eventually the Turks got used to the idea that if they ever saw these spotlights come on, that they better put their heads down because seconds later um, there would be pretty heavy naval fire. And, of course, on the night of the advance, they shone the, they shone the spotlights on the foothills, but there was no naval bombardment that followed. What did follow were the New Zealand mounted rifles sweeping forward with bayonets, and they absolutely overwhelmed the Turks. The Turks were completely unprepared. Um, and in this area on Borchips Hill, they killed 100, 100 bodies of Turks were discovered after the advance. So it was... Um, you know, a fantastic feat. It was a difficult feat to clear these foothills the Turks had operate had had occupied since the day of the landing. So you know, one of the great overlooked chapters of the campaign. Well, it's, it's again, it's careful planning, isn't it? It's thinking it through. I mean, it, it just sounds slightly monashish um, uh, in that in that preparation. You know, very clever. Shine the lights, bombard them, and uh, yeah, uh, and then don't bombard and attack on on the day that uh, you want to capture the place. So yeah, uh, p- uh, planning and and you get success, and that's what we need. Oh, that's what was needed, and sadly was not there for for most of uh, of these of these advances or attempted advances on the on the 6th. So here's a quote of, of, of what it was like to be involved in that attack on the foothills in this area. A Turkish machine gun on the spur leading to Walden's Point was responsible for many casualties and this section of the attack was momentarily held up. Tap, tap, tap went the gun, exacting a heavy toll. I'm just going to jump in there, Pete, and say, isn't that interesting again? It's how machine guns are always described. Tap, tap, tap. Yeah. Again, because they're firing, they're firing in short bursts, as we've discussed yeah. before. 
So oh, yeah. tap, 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 went the gun, exacting a heavy toll. But a subaltern named Davidson, who gained the ridge higher up, collected a few ardent spirits and with fixed bayonets charged straight down the slope. The dirt thrown up by the angry bullets flicked in their faces as they ran straight for the gun. Down tumbled the subaltern, killed leading his men, but the remnants of the party fell upon the gun crew. The keen bayonets did their silent work and the gun ceased its death-dealing tapping. That's the New Zealand official history. Very well written. I, I do enjoy reading the New Zealand official yeah. history. But, um, yeah, again, just a, a small little battle, but um, pretty pretty ferocious in its, uh, in its intent, Pete. Yeah, um, and uh, sadly, Colonel uh, Borshop was wounded during the assault and, and he died uh, four days later. Now, you'd think that he would have a grave because uh, obviously died under medical care, um, but uh, he hasn't got a grave and he's commemorated commemorated on the Lone Pine Memorial. So, again, um, just because you're under medical care doesn't always guarantee that you will, will uh, have a grave. The question has to be asked, Pete, how do you lose a colonel? The colonel's exactly. been wounded. He's in the ho- the field hospital, yep. and then he dies yep. of his wounds, and yet yep. his body's not been discovered. I think it's a, I think it's an indication, isn't it, of of what happened after we withdrew? That that grave markers uh, were were used for firewood, were burnt. Obviously, we know, um, and it's just one of those things. We know that some of their bodies were were disturbed because uh, the rumours for the local people that the that there was there was gold on some of the bodies and and precious precious metals. So we know that some of them were were, were exhumed. So I think it's just one of those things. Is that uh, you know, trying to sort out who was who at, uh, when we returned after the after the war was very very difficult. It's a very good point. This is a great spot, Borchips Hill, to get a view of just of the the mad tangle of gullies that the Anzacs had to advance through in that assault on the high ground. It's just it's just insane. You you can't quite believe it when you stand here and you're standing now in the mouth of the valley and just looking up at you can see the high ground very clearly in mm. front of you. But just the, the 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 complex tangle of gullies to get there just extraordinary that they were expected to do that. But uh, we're going to head back down the track now from Borchips Hill. We're going to uh, carry on, and then after about 650 metres, we're going to come to 7th Field Ambulance Cemetery. Now, again, an interesting, uh, unsurprisingly, a field ambulance set up uh, here and, uh, and a cemetery made beside it. Interesting, this string of cemeteries, isn't it, Pete, all the way up to Suvla? Uh, again, I, I think it reflects the yeah. isolation that uh, rather than create one big cemetery and put them all in, it's just uh, these isolated cemeteries all the way up this, this rutted track. And so they, uh, yeah. they, when they came back, they... Uh, they, they they built, you know, six or seven or eight of these uh, of these cemeteries. Well, they almost mark the routes, don't they? They mark the routes from uh, uh, either of advance or or from the front line, moving back down to the beach. And they are all again mainly medical posts. These are these are all medical posts uh, where we've discussed it earlier, where men are dying and they're needing to be buried. And you have to say, in this rugged landscape, I mean, the, the disposal, if you're going to use that rather horrific term, that the disposal of bodies was difficult because the land was dry and hard. And, you know, and when you've got tired men who you need really to fight or need to do other things to bring up water, to, to, to carry the wounded, you know, digging graves mustn't have been a, a high priority. And yet it was because the, the flies, the heat meant that men had to be buried very quickly. And so, again, I think that burying men quickly also means that not always marks are clearly because it was just necessary to get them under the ground as fast as you possibly could. And again, a big old cemetery, 640 graves, 276 yeah. unidentified. 
and 207 special memorials, as you say. The, um, yeah. You know, so yep. the, this is an interesting one, too, because this is a bit of a mixed bag of men that were killed in that assault on the high ground. So a lot of men from Britain, men from Australia, men from New Zealand, and men killed right up until the evacuation. So this cemetery, probably more than any other, is a good, uh, a good demonstration of, that, uh, that the, of how this ground was used between August uh, and, the, and the evacuation. Uh, but yep. the, the main reason we like to come to this cemetery is not actually for the cemetery, although I do spend some time there. The main, the main reason I like to come to this cemetery is it's the starting point of a short little walk that we're going to do now, Pete, which really summarises the, the futility of this assault on the high ground on the August offensive. Because this, a short walk from the cemetery, if we head back south across the fields, we come to a little, I don't even know what to describe it, a little cutting between two hills. It's a little scrub-choked gully is probably the only way you could describe it. And you should overlook it. Yep. It should mean nothing. I mean, it should be absolutely pointless in the Gallipoli campaign, just one of thousands yep. of little scrub choke gullies. This one, though, is essential in the story of particularly the Australians and Colonel Monash and the story of the Australian advance on Hill 971. Yep. Because the story was that the Australians left late. By the time they were all assembled at Anzac and began marching north for their attack on Hill 971. So they had to march up along the beach, then turn right, go up a valley and attack the high ground up Hill 971. Um, they were very late. They all got bunched up. It took a long time for the columns to move through. And so because they were so late, their commanding, uh, one of the commanders, the commander of the column, who was Major Percy Overton, uh, who was a New Zealander, he was, he was worried that they were going to be very late in the assault on the high ground. And he had a guide with him, a Greek guide who had known the area before the war. And the Greek guide said, oh, no, no, if you're trying to get to that high ground, no one bothers to go all the way north and then turn into the big valley, as the plan said. The guide said, we always take this little shortcut. There's a little gully that we sneak down and we can get there in half the time. And so getting a bit desperate, not sure what to do, Overton listened to him and they decided to take this shortcut through this little gully called Taylor's Gap. Now, it might have been fine for the occasional Greek farmer (laughs) with a donkey or two, but there were 3,000 men in the column. And you can't believe it when you see this gully. It is literally, imagine the most scrub-choked little washaway you've ever seen in your life. And 3,000 men had to barge their way through this gully. They, eventually they found the going so tough they couldn't get through anymore and pioneers had to be sent up with machetes to try and hack their way through. But just imagine, Pete, you, I mean, you've served. I've never had the honour of serving in the military, but you yeah. certainly have. How would 3,000 men in a column go being sent down this scrub-choked little gully in the dark most of the time they would have been stopped because they couldn't move forward and then just moving forward in single file down this gully. What would that do to men when they're advancing for an attack before dawn? Exhausting, mentally as well as physically, because you think, well, surely, you know, you're not doing, you're only walking for a little while and stopping again, but it's just mentally and physically exhausting because you can't sit down, you have to keep standing, and standing still can be as exhausting as as walking, uh, especially if you're loaded. Um, but the mental attitude, the mental kind of feeling of knowing that you had to be there on time, you didn't want to be caught in this gully, but in daylight, you had to get through it. And knowing that they must have been walking, well, two abreast at the best, but possibly one behind another, just just horrendous. It was just truly horrendous. You know, the, the chances of getting lost were minimal, but it's that mental knowing that you're going to be here if, if dawn breaks and you're still going to be in this uh, in this gully, trying to get through this gully. 
And you can just imagine, you know, the pioneers being sent forward, trying to get forward, trying to get to the front of the column, bringing their axes and machetes and bill hooks to try and cut their way through. And just stressful, just the whole experience uh, 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 stressful. And if you are commanding or any kind of commander, whether it you know be a lieutenant colonel or or just a sergeant in charge of a section, you know the stress on them as well, keeping their men occupied, keeping them together, keeping them quiet because they're also trying not to make a a, a lot of noise. Yeah, it's just, it's just just uh, you know one of your nightmares as a as a, a soldier to find yourself stuck in a gully. Uh, and 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 trying to get through that gully before daybreak and getting to a an attacking position and also you're going to be exhausted. One of the issues is you know, there's going to be no rest. There's going to be no lining out ready for the attack. You'll be exhausted as well. So yeah, not good. It's um just the scale of the men as well. Three thousand men. We can't even quite get our heads yeah. around. I mean, that's a you know a, a rock no. concert you'd normally go to or a sporting event. You know, three thousand yeah. men trying to squeeze through that space. It's just it's it's yeah. unbelievable. So you can scramble up and look down on Taylor's Gap and try to imagine what was going on, which is very difficult yeah. to do. And if you're incredibly hardy, like you and I did, Pete, you can actually try and walk through it. Um, yeah. And it's just a scrub choke today as it was back then. And I believe it's somewhere near here. Your glasses are still waiting for you to collect them, Pete. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, indeed. It's, it's, a tough, it's a tough slog, yeah. but you really should do it to understand yeah. just the challenge faced by the men. And the worst part of this whole little fiasco, Pete, is when they finally got through Taylor's Gap. So because it was a shortcut, they got disoriented in the dark. Overton, the, the major, major Overton, the commanding officer, he got uh, he got lost basically in the dark. And what they should have done is come out of Taylor's Gap and gone hard right into the the valley that they were supposed to be walking along. But instead, they didn't. They kept going. They walked straight across the gully they were supposed to walk across and ended up turning into the next one and didn't realise. So therefore, when they were sending reports back to Monash, their commander, yep. to say where they were. They were position. one valley too far to the north. So every time they climbed a spur and said, we're now going to begin our attack on the high ground, they were one spur too far north. When they said, we can see a hill in front of us, yeah. it was a hill too far to the north. So Monash yeah. was trying to command in the dark his columns without even knowing exactly where they were. And as I where said, it wasn't, even till, it wasn't even until after the campaign he even knew. He sat down with a map and his, his uh, staff and they said, let's try and work out this mess of what went on. And by interviewing the soldiers, they discovered that They'd been on one ridge over from where they thought they'd been. Yeah. And he was quite horrified at the whole time yeah. um, at, yeah. the, at, the, at the discovery. So, yeah. again, what a disaster. Yeah. So definitely when you're there, go and do Taylor's Gap because it's, it's just remarkable. It's, it's a symbol of, of the disaster that was the August offensive. And so if, uh, unsurprisingly, the Australians didn't get anywhere near Hill 971. They were stopped on the slopes by the Turks from very savage fighting and never got here near, anywhere near Hill 971. But we're going to head back down to the road. We're going to con- continue north past another couple of low spots done. Gem and Chilic Spur and a few other places that were famous in the fighting. But the site we really want to get to is is the last stop on our tour, but it's a really important one, Pete. And I know that the first time I took you to Gallipoli, we had quite a quite a fascinating time walking this ground. This is the battlefield of Hill 60. Oh, Hill it's one 60. of my favourites. Yeah. It's just remarkable. You can never... I mean, it's a hill really in name only. It's a barely a little rise on the ground, but it was the key feature that linked Anzac and Suva. The Turks occupied it. After the August offensive had died down, it was still occupied by the Turks. And so the Allies had a real problem that they occupied yeah. Suvla, they occupied Anzac, and the two were not linked. They were still held by the Turks. Yeah. So a few, hardy, yeah. uh, a few hardy riders used to try and make the mad dash to try and get between the two places, but they realised they had to clear the hill. I'm just going to make an interesting little point here that I do on my tours. Uh, Hill 60 on the peninsula is 60 feet above sea level. 
Hill 60 on the Western Front is uh, 60 metres uh, above sea level. So just a, a snippet of useless information. Well, it's not useless at all. It gives an indication that this hill is barely worthy. <laughs> Anyone that's been to Hill 60 in Belgium will note how high yeah. it is, famous for the mining yeah. that went under there, the movie Beneath Hill 60. Yeah. This little Hill 60 is barely a rise. It, uh, you, you, yeah. if you, you could ride your push bike up it without changing gears. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a low little hill. But... <laughs> So that was the situation. So you've got so the fighting at Suvla had died down. The British were hemmed in up there. The advance for Anzac hadn't worked, so the Anzacs were still hemmed in, although they had some new ground that they'd captured north of the sector. But right in the middle was Hill 60 occupied by the Turks. So they realised they had to clear, clear that hill of Turks so they could link up the two sectors. So on the 21st of August, a very big attack and effectively the last major assault I know that on the same day, the British troops attacked at Simitar Hill, Pete, in the nearby yeah, at Suvla, yep. uh, which was also a very large attack, one of the largest attacks. And also, yep. the, really, you could say that the last Allied offensives of the campaign took place on the 21st yep. of August. Uh, and the attack on Hill 60 was mostly a light horse attack. Very interesting. We, we tend to only think about the light horse in places like the Neck. Um, but it was basically a light horse attack where they, they swept in, they captured the Turkish trenches. But for days and days, some of the most brutal fighting of the campaign. It's an overused expression. I've used it a lot on these podcasts. But the fighting here uh, was absolutely horrific. So mostly Australians and New Zealanders with some British troops. And this is a quote that I'm going to read now, Pete, from Captain Brian, uh, Brian Cooper of the 5th Connaught Rangers. So he was British and he fought in this area. And this is just a description of what it was like to fight here. So... Again and again, the Turks attacked, mad with fanaticism, shrieking at the top of their voices and calling on Allah. The merciless bombing continued and the trenches slowly became encumbered with dead. At last, about 10.30pm after the fight had lasted five hours, a crowd of Turks succeeded in entering the ranger's trench near its northern extremity. This northern end was held by a small party of men who died where they stood. The remainder of the trench was, however, blocked and further progress by the enemy arrested. Still the fight raged, and bombs and ammunition were running short while the losses became so heavy. Fresh Turkish attacks kept coming on, and for every assailant that was struck down, two more sprang up in his place. Just imagine the horror of that, Pete. And, and unsurprisingly, the Turks refer to Hill 60 as um, Bobasert, which means uh, um, bomb hill uh, from, the, from yep. the bombs that, they, that they, they threw. So we're talking, when we say bombs, we mean hand grenades here, and we're talking hand yep. grenades... The, the famous Turkish cricket ball grenade with the fuse and the the, yep. the Anzac jam tin bomb, just used in just savagely here. And again, Pete, give us your perspective as a military man. What would it be like yep. to be in these cramped trenches at night with these attacks and counterattacks going on? Yeah, well, again, um, it's uh, you've got to rely upon your friends because the that's why the the camaraderie uh, of uh, of the military is is helpful here. You have to know the guy on the left is doing his job because you're just protecting your front or you're fighting in your little bit of the of the trench. But it's very hard when you've got exploding bombs, which even though they may not kill you, they shock you, uh, and so they'll they'll knock you over, they'll rattle your brain, so that uh, you're you're in a stupefied situation, and so you're relying on somebody else while you you recover to to protect you. So just just horrendous close quarter fighting, and it is almost becoming it becomes medieval almost in its ferocity. And I know that when uh, when we were there, one of the things that we found all over Hill 60 were fragments of bombs. There were fragments of grenades of those Turkish uh, 
uh, ball grenades uh, everywhere. And so it was. it's still there. It's still in the landscape, this evidence of the, the ferocity of the fighting that took place uh, on the, on Hill 60. So an extraordinary place to visit, extraordinary place to, to read these accounts and then to see the physical uh, remnants in the landscape still. And yeah, I found it very moving when we were, when we were there. I have them on my desk beside me, Pete. One of the most treasured artifacts uh-huh. I've ever found on a battlefield, but three yep. pieces of a Turkish cricket yep. ball grenade, um, still with the, the curved surface. I think these are three pieces from the same grenade. I mean, they're, yep. they're, like they're, they almost match together. Just extraordinary. Yep. They're probably not, but it, it just that we, yeah, I found three pieces in quick succession yep. uh, just in that area, in the area where so many grenades were thrown. Yep. Just ex- I, I love those links with, with that history. Yep, that finding too. bomb fragments on Bomber Cert was, um, was, was pretty remarkable. Um, yep. Just an extraordinary place to visit. We also found, Pete, I recall, a um, an Australian bullet, you know, an Anzac bullet with the curved yep. top, yep. which the actual, the actual projectile fired from a rifle, just a, a remarkable area. If you look behind the cemetery, there are still a number of trenches and you can see the site where the ferocious fighting went on. So the, the, the Anzacs didn't succeed in capturing the entire hill, but they got to the summit. They held off against those ferocious Turkish attacks. But one person that was very prominent was um, Second Lieutenant Hugo Throssell, one of the great yeah, tragedies yeah. of the war. Good old yeah. Hugo Throssell, the, the last Victoria Cross awarded to an Australian at, uh, at Gallipoli. So he, uh, he was instrumental in holding back the Turks during these counterattacks. So grenades were exploding all around him, and it was said that he was, uh, he was, the men were inspired by his fiery valour and witty sallies. So fighting not only ferociously but with good humour. Um, he was wounded several times for grenade, by grenades and refused to leave the line while these men were still there fighting. Um, at one stage, a grenade went off and fragments of the grenade actually forced the Australia, the metal shoulder title that said Australia, into his shoulder, through his tunic yeah. and into his shoulder. Uh, they removed it when they treated him in the field hospital later on. They had to pull it out of his shoulder with tweezers. Yeah. Um, but he refused to leave until his commanding officer came along and saw him all bloodied and bandaged and ordered him out of the line. And he left the line and then collapsed and was taken to the field hospital and, and treated and uh, was invalided back to Australia. He was so badly wounded, so never, never, uh, never, um, never returned to Gallipoli. However, did successfully lobby to be returned and served in uh, in Palestine in 1917. Served in 1917 and 1918 with his his mates from the Light Horse. So a remarkable story. Awarded the Victoria Cross for his bravery. Um, but just a tragedy again. A tragedy of the First World mm. War. He was from Western Australia. Um, his father had actually been the uh, Premier of Western Australia at the turn of the century. So he's from quite a distinguished family. Um, his brother had been killed during the war and he always struggled with his war wounds. Poor old Hugo, Hugo Throssell. He was always in immense pain from his wounds and he never really yeah. recovered and he was a bit of a shell of a man. Um, on 19 November 1933, he sat down on the veranda of his farm and shot himself. Committed suicide. He was 49. So again, the, the tragedy of the, of the First World War that echoed for, for decades mm-hmm. afterwards. I always feel yeah. so sorry for for Hugo Throssell and, and that story. But, you know, he went from greatness having won the VC to uh, to that sad end on his balcony in Western Australia. I, th- I don't think he actually ever came to terms with the loss of his brother either. I think that uh, that was difficult for him as well. There's, there's a very good book about him, I'm afraid. I can't remember who the author is, but there's an excellent book of, uh, about him. I've got it somewhere on my, my bookshelf behind me. It's uh, it's just a remarkable place, Hill Sixty. I mean, we we sound like we're lingering here, but you should you should linger when you walk. And yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, the the cemetery is is fascinating. It's just a you know just a place of such immense grief. It feels like it, doesn't it? But you go up there, yeah, and it's it sort does. of pine yeah. trees looming over you, and the wind whispering through the trees. It feels ominous. Yeah. It's a 
it's you know there are ghosts all around you up there and it's 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 quite an awful place um and the cemetery is picturesque but feels awful as well especially when you know what goes on around there the cemetery is built on the side of those trenches many of the men are still buried in the trenches where they fell so today 707 788 burials 712 unidentified so again one of those massive cemeteries at gallipoli with just a few headstones so just absolutely should um, should go there. Um, Helen Clark, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, her uh, her uncle is uh, is buried there. He was killed in the fighting as well, and so he's buried there as well. So Helen Clark always had a very soft spot for uh, for yeah. Hill Sixty, uh, and it's just one of those iconic places. I think we should leave it there, Pete. I think um, I think that's been a good walk through that north of Anzac sector, and and next week we'll do the rest of Suvla as we head up. But uh, just a remarkable little little spot in Gallipoli that not a lot of people get to, Pete. No, indeed not. Can I go for a dip now? Fancy a dip. <laughs> Especially if you've been here in August in the footsteps of the uh, yeah. of the troops. It's uh, just a remarkable place. So thank you for joining us on this walk through Gallipoli. We always love uh, going and, uh, and, uh, and doing these more far-flung battlefields. And this is a, a very special one with some very special things that went on here. So we, we hope that you've enjoyed this. Hopefully you've been. Send us some notes through social media. Contact us and tell us if you've been... Have you been to Gallipoli? Have you been to the Suvla sector? Is it a place you're looking forward to going? I strongly recommend you go there uh, whenever you go to Gallipoli. So it's, you know, thank you for joining us once again. Follow us on social media. Subscribe if you want to get extra content. Uh, And just thank you for following us. Pete, it's been wonderful as always. I look forward to your reports from the battlefields as you head off for Anzac Day (laughs) and for talking to you again in a couple of weeks, mate, when we do our next Battle Walks recording. Yeah, look forward to it, Matt. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.